Acts chapter 9. And when the when Jesus saved the chief of sinners, subtitled this, this is such a blessed portion of the book of Acts. Um, I want to answer some questions this morning. Who, did, who was this guy named Saul of Tarsus? And we need to find out why he hates Jesus and Christians so much. And uh, if you know anything about Saul of Tarsus, looking back in chapter 7 and chapter 8, he would be the last person you would imagine would ever get saved. They would ever become a follower of Jesus. Yet Acts chapter 9 shows Jesus seeking him out. See, Saul didn't go looking for God. Saul wasn't looking for Jesus. Saul was, Saul was completely settled in his faith, and yet Jesus came looking for him. So uh, let's go to Acts chapter 9 and verse 1 and 2. Let me just read that, and then I'm going to make a statement here. It says, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went into the high priest. So can you imagine him? He's, he's just out of his mouth. He's just, oh, I can't wait to get my hands on them. Oh, if I could just find those heretics. I just, I'll just uh, uh, punish them, and I will drag them if I have to down to Jerusalem. He's constantly breathing out threatenings. He can't. He's obsessed. Do you see what, I, what I'm trying to say? He is obsessed with these Christians. So we start here with Saul. It says, and Saul. Who was this Saul of Tarsus? Well, you're in Acts. Go to Acts chapter 22. Let's learn a little bit about him. <clears throat> Acts 22 and verse 3. Acts 22 and verse 3, I, this is Paul talking, I am verily a man which am a Jew. He's not a Christian. Right? And when you meet Saul of Tarsus, he's not European, he's not uh, uh, Russian, he's not any, he is a Jew born in Tarsus. Now, Tarsus is way up at the top. It's on the edge of Turkey. If I had given you a full map, this is all the Medi this is the Mediterranean Sea, and it would have spread across here. And then that's Turkey. That's the far eastern edge of Turkey. And in 22, verse 3, he goes on. He says, I am verily a man which am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, yet brought up in this city. So he grew up in Jerusalem at the feet of a very well-known, very knowledgeable Jewish theologian named Gamaliel. And by the way, being a theologian doesn't make you saved. Okay, You can be very biblically knowledgeable and still end up in hell because... Unless you believe Jesus, the whole Bible is about him. And unless you finally find him, you've missed the whole point of every portion of Scripture. He says, I, I was brought up at the feet of Gamaliel. And I was taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers and was zealous toward God. I mean, if you met Saul of Tarsus, he was passionate about religion and about God and about the law. He goes on, as ye all are this day. So he was speaking to a crowd who were also very zealous. Look in chapter 23 in verse 6. <clears throat> Acts, uh, Acts chapter 23 in verse 6. But when Paul perceived that the one part that were accusing him and were trying to get him imprisoned, that they were Sadducees and the other were Pharisees, he cried out in the council. Men and brethren, 
I'm a what? I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee of the, and of the hope and the resurrection of the dead am I called in question. So this guy is not just, you know, normal church attender. He's not just somebody on the street. He is one of the church leaders. He's a Pharisee, which was not the best of things, but that's what he was. One more first of scripture, uh, Philippians. Go to the right. A few more books to the right to Philippians chapter 3. See the kind of Jew that he was. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 5. Philippians 3 and 5 says, I was circumcised the eighth day, which is what you're supposed to do. That was the commandment of God on the eighth day, not the ninth and not the seventh, but I was circumcised on the right day. I was of the stock. I was of the nation of Israel. I was an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin, which was a good tribe, and Hebrew of the Hebrews. You know, somebody says, I'm old style Irish, somebody would say. Yeah, I understand that. That's what he's saying. I'm, I'm a purebred Hebrew. As touching the law, I was a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, <laughs> you never met anybody more, per, more zealous than me. I persecuted the church. Touching the righteousness which is in the law, nobody could point a finger at me. I was blameless. This guy was a serious dude, religiously speaking. Now, Saul of Tarsus, if I can get this thing working. It, there we go. Hated anything and, ev and everything that was a threat to his nice, tidy religion. That's what he didn't like. Here is now, Jesus was tolerated, but when he was finally put to death, these Christians were like, like ants at the picnic. You just, you just got to get rid of them. And so he hates this, this name, Jesus. He hates his, the, the followers of him. So go back to Acts chapter 9. Let's see what he's determined to do. Acts chapter 9, in verse 1. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, he went unto the high priest and desired of him letters, letters of authority is what he's looking for, to go to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, that's how they referred to, they didn't like to say Jesus' name and as far as this way. Whether they be men or women, he might bring them bound back to Jerusalem. So Saul heard that there were heretics up in Damascus. Damascus is up about 70 miles, 80 miles north. This little bitty spot here is the Sea of Galilee. This is where Jesus spent most of his time. So he's leaving the nation of Israel and going into a foreign country to go and find those heretics and drag them back to Jerusalem. He wants to examine every synagogue and he wants to arrest them for changing their faith. It's no longer being a Jew. And he wants to drag them back to Jerusalem where they would humiliate them and they would imprison them. Do you know, that's what religion always does. Religion can't, I'm talking about all world's religions, always has this idea that they're, they're the top dog and anybody else needs to be eradicated. And there have been a lot of religious wars throughout history, haven't there been? And throughout history, there's a lot of shame in the name of Christ, which was not Christ. Christ said, let them alone. 
Somebody disagrees with you. Somebody slaps you on the cheek for being different than them. Give them the other cheek. We don't fight over God. God's big enough. You understand? Somebody, somebody doesn't like what I say. You have the freedom to disagree with me. But in religion, oh, man, let's persecute them. Let's drive them out. So you got to see there's a difference between Christianity and what religion is. Now, um, then verse 3. What an amazing turn of events. Where is, is Saul? Saul's at the head of an entourage of men. He's walking as fast as he can. He is headed north. He has letters that say he has the authority. If he finds anybody that is a Christian to put chains on them or to tie them up and drag them back to Jerusalem where he will imprison them, that's his attitude. And as he's on that route, look at verse three. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. He's almost at his destination. And suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him. And it's amazing when somebody says your name. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? He said, who art thou? Lord. And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I think this is, I think God's got some great humor. We'll talk about it in a second. But guess who he has an encounter with on that road? With Jesus. Suddenly, there's a conversation that takes place. And let me be real plain with you. If you're ever going to get saved, there has to be a conversation that takes place. This is not a Calvinist church. I'm sorry. You must talk to Jesus because he wants to talk to you. And you're going to have to settle the, the debt at his expense. And here's Saul, and he's having a conversation with who he thought was a dead man. He probably had seen Jesus die. He probably had risen his voice, raised his voice and says, crucify him. And yet here is somebody saying, it's me, Jesus. Saul, Saul. Here's Saul hearing a voice from heaven, and it sounds familiar, all right? You know, it's just something you can, you can, you can sometimes tell just by the voice of somebody going, I know who that is. But Saul's not quite so sure, okay? We're going to talk about this for a second. He says, why are you fighting me? Why persecutest thou me? Now, isn't that true? Who was, who was Saul going after? You can't, you can't beat up a dead man. So, but he's after the disciples. But who does Jesus say he's actually fighting? You're still fighting me. It's like an atheist. You ever seen an angry atheist? I meet them all the time. They hate somebody they don't believe exists. <laughs> Just say the name Jesus. If I said Easter Bunny, they won't get angry. They know he doesn't exist. But you say Jesus, ah, he doesn't exist. Why are you so angry then? <laughs> it's demonic. It's weird. So this anger that he has against Christians is really against Jesus, isn't it? Jesus says, hey, by the way, when you're fighting my people, you're fighting me. So remember that. The Lord's going to take care of them. They don't get saved. The Lord will take care of them. So Paul asks a real, I mean, all things, the only thing that Paul can say here is, who are you? Is that you? Lord, now watch that comma. 
there's a pause. I know we, we all text, so we don't use commas anymore. We don't use hyphens and semicolons, but they're there for a purpose. Look there in verse uh, five, uh, or sorry, verse six, and he trembling, he's afraid, and astonished, he said, I'm sorry, I'm not finished, uh, uh, verse five, and he said, who art thou, pause, Lord? Now, if I get a phone call and I pick up the phone, kind of stupid, I open the phone or I turn it on or I answer the phone. Oh, for the old days where you picked up a phone. Anyway, you answer it and you hear this voice, hey, Craig. And I go, who's this? Now, that's not Paul. Paul's not going, who is this? Who's talking to me? No, he says, I suspect that same voice. Is that you, Lord? That's why he adds the word Lord in there. He's not just saying, who is that talking to me? No. Is that really you? And what does Jesus respond? Verse uh, five it says, and he said, who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus. Isn't that awesome? It's me. I'm the guy you thought was dead and gone. And I'm very much alive. If only, folks, if only you had a conversation where the Lord proved that he's there. I mean, uh, here's Jesus saying, you know what? Go to Matthew chapter 26. I'll show you something. Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 63. Jesus is in front of the Sanhedrin. And I think Saul of Tarsus is there. We're, we're not told but he probably is part of the Sanhedrin. He's there. He's kind of, he's not an outward. He's not like the high priest and like some of the other guys. He's just sitting there, but he hears these words. Listen to Jesus in verse 23. I'm sorry, is that right? Uh, 26, 63, thank you. But Jesus held his peace and the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee, I command thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Messiah, the son of God. Jesus said, watch what he says unto him, thou hast said, you said it. Nevertheless, I say unto you, you ain't seen nothing yet. Now that's in the original Greek, okay? Hereafter shall ye see the son of man. You'll see me sitting where? On the very right hand of power. And one day coming in the clouds of heaven, Jesus said, do you really... Do you understand who you're talking to? You're going to, I'm going to heaven and I'm going to rule in heaven and I will come back from heaven. What do you think of that? And that's when they said, kill him, all right? We have no more need for, for evidence. This guy's a blasphemer. Now, to, to Saul of Tarsus, this was blasphemy that God would have a son and that son could die and then could actually be in heaven. That was blasphemy. And yet, here was the very same man he had watched die speaking to him just as he said he would. I like how he ends it. He says, uh, go back to Acts chapter 9. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Now, my dad talked like that. He didn't, ask, he didn't ask, aren't you tired of fighting me? He didn't say that. It's hard for you to fight me. He's making a statement so that you realize, yes, it is. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Now, the pricks, in, in, in farming, you, you use different tools 
uh, for different things. And one of the tools they used to motivate a mule or to motivate a big ox would be a goad. You, know, you ever said, oh, he really goads me. And that's probably not said very often these days. But it means somebody would come along and would poke and it would just get you moving. Here, somehow throughout Paul's life, Jesus had been pricking Paul's heart. And every time that prick would go for his heart, he would knock it back. He would kick it back. I bet he got really good at judo and jiu-jitsu and taekwondo and all the different things. And he's fighting and he's kicking. And Lord says, you tired yet? You tired? And then verse 6, probably one of the greatest scriptures in the New Testament. Verse 6 is this. And he, Saul, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. You know, the second greatest prayer to pray is, Lord, what do you want me to do? The first greatest prayer is this. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Second greatest prayer is, okay, what do you want me to do? You win. Can you see in Saul, he no longer is going to fight. He's no longer going to argue. He's no longer going to resist. He says, you win. That's a wonderful moment to have. Would you agree? Absolute, unconditional surrender. You know what the allies required of Germany? Absolute unconditional surrender. You know what the allies required of Japan? Absolute unconditional surrender. That's why, boy, it took them a long time to finally go, okay. When they did, the world got back on going. And you know why most people are miserable today? Because they will not surrender. Oh, they want heaven. They want forgiveness. But they don't want to surrender, man. Uh, not many people do this. So I have found that in most Christian lives, there is no victory. There's just continual bondage, even in Christian homes, because people will not surrender and say, Lord, I know what I want to do to her. What will thou have me to do? Saul did two things. Um, after this, uh, in this, if you notice there, let's read it again. In verse 6, and he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Now, I want you to get a picture. Jesus doesn't answer him. He says, uh, go into in Damascus, and there you'll get something else. I'll tell you what to do there. How many of you ever played a game where you had to find a clue, and you open it? It would say, now you got to go here and find another clue. And you go there, and you find another clue. That's faith. God didn't show you all of your life when you get saved, what's it going to be? What kind of trouble you're going to be in? What, what, what good times are going to He just says, take a baby step and follow me. So I'll talk about that in a second. But Saul did two things. Number one, he believed that that voice was Jesus. He believed that he was alive. I mean, what a crazy thing. He just says, I saw you crucified and you're still alive. And the second thing that he did that changed his life was he submitted to the lordship of Jesus. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For whosoever shall call upon the name of Jesus, now Jesus is the name that saves, but what does it say? Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. You see that emphasis that sometimes we miss. And that was enough. 
That was enough to change, save and change the probably the worst, chiefest. Paul calls himself the chiefest of sinners, the worst religious man you'd ever want to meet. If you did not cross your T like he did, he would have punched you. If you did not dot your eyes, if everything wasn't just like he thought it should be, he was out to punish. I mean, who'd want to have that for a friend? And yet at this point, I mean, he could do nothing. There was no dotting, no crossing, no doing, no saying, just believing and surrendering. And it led to a great truth. It led, I don't know why this thing doesn't like me today. Go, go. <laughs> Verse seven. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless. All right, they're hearing a voice, but seeing no man. Now, I don't know. He, he says later on in Acts, he says, there was a voice, but we couldn't hear the words. So I'm not sure what it sounded like, but you ever been to a train station or a old bus station? Today. <laughs> what did it say, man? I don't know. But they hear a voice, but they don't hear the words, okay? And it goes on, and it says, um, uh, verse 8, And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. What has just happened to him is humiliation. Here's a man who is glary-eyed. He is steely-eyed. He is laser-beam focused on where he's going and what he's going to do. And the Lord pulls a rug out from under him and says, you're going to be blind for a little while, bud. And you're going to have to just let other people guide you along. And you're going to have to start all over. This is what faith is. Folks, this is probably one of the most intellectual theologians you'd ever meet. And what is Jesus telling him? We're going to start all over with you. We're going to teach you how to walk by faith and not by sight. I'm going to have you trust and walk right into a Christian home. And that Christian is going to love you and going to help you. And you're just going to be at home and you're going to learn what you refused to learn all before. Saul had just reset everything that he believed. Jesus called it being born again all over again on the inside. I gave the gospel very briefly to a guy years ago. He says, I am a Ph.D. I want to tell him that meant post hole digger. But it didn't, it didn't go that way. But you know what a Ph.D. professor at a university needs to do? He must be born again. I, I have met theologians. Uh, um, Tony and I, years ago, we were down in Grange or, or Franklin, wherever. We met somebody that I, uh, it was in an area or somebody. I don't know if he knew you or whatever. He was a vicar of a church over there. As I'm giving him the gospel, I said, are you born again? He says, I am a vicar. <laughs> and I, I played dumb. I said, what's that mean? You know. <laughs> then I said, but Jesus said you must be born again. You see what I'm saying? People come to God and they bring all their baggage. They bring their 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 medals and all of their honor. And I don't care if you're atheist or if you're agnostic, you cannot half believe and be born again. Paul says it later on. He says, if you're almost saved, you're still lost. Catholic, Baptist, Pentecostal, you know what the truth is? You must be born again. You've 
That's why he, Jesus used that phrase, you've got to start all over again. Not on the outside. There was Nicodemus saying, i got to go back in my mama. No, 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 Jesus. No, no, no. I'm talking about a spiritual birth on the inside. You start completely over. So he starts over. I like on um, uh, Kung Fu Panda. Remember? He goes in there and he says, can we start at level zero? <laughs> and what are the little, the little raccoon says, there is now a level zero. Remember that in the, in the show? Well, you know what? When you get born again, you don't start at level one, two, three, four. You start always at level zero. And here he was taking some baby steps. He's learning to pray again. He's learning to, to trust. He's learning what it means to just wait on God because... Jesus is not telling him everything. He says, I want you to go to Damascus, and I'll tell you there. I'll let you know when we get there. Now, we meet a guy in verse 10, which is really unique. How important is the call of God on Saul of Tarsus? Probably one of the biggest calls next to Moses in the Bible. Paul's going to turn the world upside down. Paul is great. But did you know there's somebody else in the same event that gets just as valuable a call? His name is Ananias. And Ananias is not the greatest of preachers. He's not the most intelligent of theologians. He's not the fanciest speaker. But he's going to have a part in propelling Saul into Paul. So let's talk about Ananias, verse 10. Still in chapter 9. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in the vision, Ananias. <gasps> Somebody else having a conversation with Jesus. I think everybody in this room should have a conversation with Jesus every day. Amen. I like how Buddy Brunkle said it. I met somebody on the train who said God doesn't exist. And uh, Buddy Brunkle said, oh, he's very much alive. I talked to him today. <laughs> and he called his name and he said, Ananias. And he said, behold, I am here, Lord. Isn't that a nice way to respond? If the Lord puts up on your heart, you say, ready to go. What do you want me to do? We'll read down to verse 16, and we'll come back. And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the street, which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul. That's not Judas Iscariot. A lot of people are called Judas, okay? And call for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. Hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him, that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, uh, Lord... I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind in prison all call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, go thy way. Stop arguing. <laughs> For he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must. Joel Osteen, are you listening? He must suffer for my namesake. So Ananias is a disciple, a follower of Jesus living up in Damascus. Now, he's a Jew who's gotten converted. We call him a completed Jew. And he is a target of Saul. He's the guy that Saul was coming to capture, wasn't he? He's one of those heretics that Saul, if Saul had not been stopped on the road to Damascus, if Saul had been allowed to go into Damascus, he would have found Ananias and would have imprisoned him down in Jerusalem. Get that picture. No wonder Ananias is saying, Lord, are you, are you sure about this? But you know what Ananias was? He was a servant. And a servant doesn't question his master. A servant looks and says, 
you, you want me to be a missionary? You want me to go to Ireland? I'm a Texan. I don't even know where Ireland is. <laughs> that was my conversation with the Lord when he called me. Jesus had a job for Ananias to do. Did, did Jesus have a job for, for Paul? Yes, he did. But look, sometimes we compare. Well, I guess I've got nothing to do. I can't be like pastor. Thank God you're not like pastor. God has a purpose and design. From the moment you got saved, he says, I saved you for a purpose. And here's Ananias. Jesus spoke right to him, and he gave him clear instructions to help Saul. You have no idea, folks. Right now, Elizabeth Bartlett is next door. You know what she's doing? She may be preparing the next Paul. You take a little bit of your time on the street and you hand a gospel track out, you may influence the next Charles Spurgeon, the next person who has a God-given opening that could turn the world upside down, unlike you or I could ever do. Just you're being faithful to whatever the Lord asks you to do. Ananias is just as important as Saul of Tarsus getting saved. Amen? Gave him clear instructions. Listen to his instructions. Well, let's see. Um, well, let me give you the clear instructions. He says, I want you to get up, go search for a man named Saul of Tarsus, and I want you to help him. I want you to encourage him. Because he... You're going to find him in a house owned by a man named Judas, which must have made his hair stand up on the back of his neck, all right? Judas, oh no. <laughs> and he's on a street called Straight, which everybody in court knows what that means. It was a very short street. There are no straight streets in court. Anyway, <clears throat> uh, and he says, and Saul right now is praying, and he's expecting you. I already told him you'd be coming. And Ananias' phrase back is, uh, but Lord... He says, are, are, are you sure about this? You know, we all volunteer. I actually heard a song. Please, Lord, don't call me to Africa. <laughs> I've known missionaries who says, Lord, I'll go anywhere except to my own hometown. Send me to Africa, somebody says, because <laughs> I don't want to witness to my friends from secondary school. Hmm. See, we come to God and we're all willing to volunteer with conditions. And we'll say, but Lord, they won't listen. That doesn't matter. Our normal response is, but, 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 but Lord, Saul is a dangerous man. Lord, I've heard what Saul did to your saints, to the best people on the planet. These were murderers. These weren't evil people. These were saints down living in Jerusalem. And, and you want me to go and meet Saul? Jesus said, uh, yes do what I tell you to do. Why? Because Saul belongs to me now. That'll make a big difference over anything you do. Guess who's in charge of this world? And don't say the devil. Because I know the devil is the god of this world, but he's a little G, which means he has little power compared to the big G who has all power. So yes, Little G God of this world, the devil, he has some power and he's running around and creating havoc. But there's a God in heaven, and who, do we, who are we obeying? God Almighty, and he can make a way through the wilderness. He can split the Red Sea, and he can change a Saul of Tarsus. And he says, Saul belongs to me now. He's not the same man you think he is. And isn't, it, isn't salvation wonderful? When Jesus does get a hold of a person's heart, they are not the same. 
He has been changed. The Bible word is converted. Go back to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. In verse 19. Peter. Oh boy, does he get up and he's preaching to those self-righteous Jews. And he says, repent ye therefore and be. Now he never says be better Jews. Do you know what everybody wants to be? A better Irishman, a better husband, a better wife. Hmm. You know what Jesus said? You got to be converted. We're going to have to start all over with you in order to make you a new creature in Christ, a new person. Um, go to Matthew 18. Matthew 18. We'll come back to Acts 9 here and finish up in just a moment. Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18 and verse 3 and 4. Well, look at verse 2. Jesus called, Matthew 18, 2, and Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them. So he's got all his disciples around this little child, and he's holding the little child on his shoulders. And he looks up at all of those, those um, rough-cut men. And these were not wimps. These were guys who could work all night long, back-breaking work, fishing, drawing nets out, mending nets, throwing them back in, catching fish all night. Here they are, and Jesus takes a little child, and he puts him in the midst, and he looks at him, and he says, Verily, verse 3, I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself, as this little child just did, came up to me, trusted me, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that powerful? So until a grown man can allow the Lord to talk to him like a little child and say, follow me. You'll never get saved. You'll argue with God. You'll fight him all the days of your life. Jesus says, Saul's been converted. He's been changed. He's a chosen vessel. And this is probably the best part of this whole message, if you'll just pay attention for just a second. Saul is a murderer. He's a killer. He's a threat. He only knows anger, wrath, religion he knows perfectionism he's hypercritical he is evil he calls himself later on i'm the chief of sinners he meant that for he said that for a reason he said i was an evil man as good as i looked on the outside jesus said i've got something great for him to do now when i need something done i find somebody who i like <laughs> I hire, I mean, if I found, if I found a builder and I says, I need you to fix a window or I need you to patch the roof. And this guy, he's got blood dripping on a sword and, you know, he's just, he's just snarling. And he says, well, I first got to go kill somebody. I've got a contract out on somebody and then I'll come and help you. I wouldn't hire him. I'm giving you an extreme example to see God doesn't see you as you are because you already did. He knows exactly what you are. He sees you what he can, he sees what he can do in you. And that's the greatest revelation that whatever you were or whatever you are is not what God wants you to be. Your past does not define you. Even your present circumstances do not define you. Jesus does. And he's got a plan for your life. Why not find out what it is? <laughs> Why not give it the program? It may take years, but you know what? If he's in charge, I think it'll always turn out well. 
He's a chosen vessel. So a chosen vessel is a simple, it's an old phrase. It means when you go to the cupboard and you have somebody special in the house, what kind of cup do you give them? Get the one with the chip in it, you know? <laughs> no, you get the best one, don't you? You get the one that's, that's got flowers on it, got, got Irish Gaelic symbols on it, you know? And just something beautiful. Haven't used it in years. You know, you wash it out. So this is for you. That's called a chosen vessel. And here was the Lord. When he saved Saul, he says, I've got a special, special purpose. Not so that Saul could be living in palaces, not so that he could be worshipped, not so that he could have a million followers on Old Testament Twitter. So that he could suffer as he turns the world upside down. I got a special job. But he says to Ananias, Ananias, he's not going to get started without your help. He needs you right now. So guess what? Two brothers meet. Looking back there in Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. Verse 17. I met somebody on the street with, with uh, Weston and Tony, uh, or Weston and John, and we were in town. And this woman, I started to give her the gospel. She said, it's okay, it's okay. Two years ago, I got born again. I said, wait a minute, how did it happen? She told me your testimony. Um, uh, and, um, uh, she just was just, she says, I, I yearned to meet another Christian and it was just wonderful. And, and I said, you know what? I'm the brother you didn't know you had. And it's true. All of a sudden here's Ananias and he meets Saul and two brothers meet. Watch this. Verse 17. And Ananias went his way and he entered into the house and putting his hands on him said, brother, Saul, isn't that precious? He didn't come in and says, terrorist. <laughs> Brother Saul. I bet you that put Saul's heart at such ease. He's accepted. The Lord, even Jesus, hath appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest. He hath sent me. That thou mightest two things, receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. Just, just stop there because there's just so much. Um, uh, Ananias, he finally agrees and he yields and takes a big risk. And he started to search. Now, remember, what street was he looking in? All right, so it's a street called Straight. So there actually is in Damascus. The street is still there. Now, this is a picture from the 1800s, and that's Straight Street. Now, I don't think they know which house Judas lived in. But can you imagine? Here's, here's Ananias, and he goes, yes, uh, does Judas live here? No. <laughs> Next house. Go away. I'm looking for Judas. He doesn't live here. And he goes from house to house, and then a guy opens the door, and he says, you Judas? He says, yes, and he pushes in. He's uninvited. He says, I think there's a man here named Saul. How did you know? And he goes in, and he finds him. Saul is blind. And so he hears somebody come in. How does Saul know who's coming in and whether he will hurt him or help him? And Saul's just sitting there and he calls him. He places both hands upon Saul and he calls him brother. I think that is absolutely price. I bet time stopped. Saul, uh, Ananias has accepted Saul and Saul accepts Ananias. And he says, you know, when you were 
on the road to, to Emmaus, you met Jesus, didn't you? And Saul's eyes, as blind as they were, got big. And he says, how did you know? And then he says, um, Jesus sent me to give you two gifts. And the first one was a gift of healing. He said, I'm going to give you your sight back, which was always good because a Jew needs the sign gifts. But why do you think God, why do you think Jesus blinded Saul? It was for one good reason, all right? Because Saul was blind on so many levels. He had been wrong about most everything in his life, and he needed healing of a blindness of his heart. Every time Jesus blind, uh, healed somebody, it was to show a deeper need needed to be healed. When he healed a man who was, had, had uh, palsy and couldn't get out of a cot, and they dropped him out and down uh, from the roof, they opened up the roof and dropped him down. What did Jesus say? Your sins are forgiven you. And then everybody freaked out, and he says, okay, which is more, which is it more impossible, to forgive sins or to heal a crippled man? And he was able to do both, but he's trying to show there was a deeper need. And so that blindness was going to be healed. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says this, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not. Lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. When Paul wrote that, I think he's remembering his time that he got saved when the light of the glorious gospel illuminated his blindness. But he also got a second gift, and that was the gift of the filling of the Holy Spirit of God. That's the greatest gift. You can be healed every day, all day, and it won't do you any good in your soul, will it? You need the Holy Spirit of God. That's salvation. That's the, that, he was already saved, but that's the assurance of salvation. There was a transition time when God was doing it in part so that the Jews would actually be able to tell this person's really saved. But he got the gift of the Holy Spirit of God. And in verse 18, look there in verse um, 18, and immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales. And he received sight forthwith, and he rose, and he was baptized. Immediately the blindness was gone. He got up, and he went and got baptized. Now, that brings up an interesting point. I mean, when Ananias took him down there to be baptized, I bet you everybody fled. They couldn't believe what was happening. But I want you to see the sequence of events. Number one, Saul surrendered to Jesus being alive. That's, that's belief. I guess he is alive. That was when he got saved. And he instantly submitted to the Jesus as Lord. That's when he yielded. No longer going to do the will of the Pharisees. No longer going to do his own will. He's going to do the will of the very man that he thought was dead. And the man that he hated. And by the way, his yielding was not going to be a once-off thing. It's going to be a way of life, isn't it, for Paul? Um. Ananias put his hands on blind Saul, and he was healed. Immediately, the blindness was gone. He was filled with the Holy Spirit of God in an instant, just by a touch. And what's the last thing that happened? That's when he got baptized. I call it crossing over. At that moment, he has made a public statement, I'm on your side. I'm in, you. I'm in this group now. So his baptism, folks, did nothing for him. It's the last thing he did. It's an important thing to do. By the way, if you've not been scripturally baptized, you ought to get baptized. But baptism does nothing for you. It does something for the world to know, have you crossed over? Have you come out? Have you been, been changed? And are you willing to say, I now follow Jesus? He's already saved. People get it all. You got to be baptized at the time of your salvation. Baptism is part of your salvation. Are you kidding me? Saul is saved. He's yielded. He's called. He's filled with the Holy Ghost, and then he gets baptized. 
See how it works? So all got busy. Verse 19, it says, and when he had recovered, when he received meat, which means he ate a good dinner, he was strengthened and then was saw certain days with the disciples, which were at Damascus. What do you think he's doing with the disciples? Loving it. Did he ever in his life think he would sit down and share a meal and listen to Christians talk about Jesus? But now he can't get enough of it. One of the sure signs that you're saved is when you can't get enough of church and the Bible and Christians and being around and, and just, just fellowshipping and listening to Jesus being honored and lifted up. He's completely convinced that he's been wrong. Wrong about God, about Jesus. And I think he's realizing I was wrong about Stephen too. Remember, he was there when he was calling for Stephen to be. Can you imagine how much guilt is now coming upon him? Wow, aren't you glad forgiveness covers all? I mean, when a man admits he's wrong, it's a big deal, amen, ladies? And here's a man admitting he's wrong. He's admitting that he's a great sinner in need of being saved. He says it this, he says in 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, everybody ought to accept this, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. He believes, and he's firmly convinced that Jesus is now alive and he's the son of God and that Jesus has something for him to do. He, he's, a lot of people do this. They kind of come up in queue and they take Jesus, put him in their back pocket and they go on back with their old life. That's kind of weird. Would you agree? You, ladies, you wouldn't like a guy to get married that way, would you? Just meet you on weekends. The rest of the time he's on his own. No, no, no. Salvation is a full-time life. And uh, he finds out, I've, got, I, I've saved you for a purpose. And there's a great thought I had. Saul has a new direction and yet the same energy. What do I mean by that? He's now going to put just as much effort to living for Jesus as he did living against Jesus. You never see that energy level drop. There are people in this room who just a few years ago used to plop down on the weekend 150 euros for drink or for drugs. And you won't put 10 euros in to the offering box. I say that's hypocrisy. Would you agree? There are people who used to spend six hours a week or more on gym and sports and activities and won't and complain at an hour and a half at church. You see, when you get saved, whatever level of energy you used to put out for the world and for the flesh and for the devil... You ought to live for the Lord. I guarantee you, you'll never be happy until you turn that same energy around for him because only he has a payment plan that pays off. People will read social media for hours on end. You ought to turn on your little notice that says, you are on social media four hours and 15, cent, 15, cents, 15 minutes last week. That's 22% up last, over the last week before. And you realize, I was on four hours yes, last, last week? What if you read your Bible for four hours last week? Oh, if you can do four hours on that and four hours in the Bible, I'm impressed. <laughs> but you see, Saul has a new direction, but he puts out the same energy he was against Christ. Now it's four. He spends several days with the disciples. I don't know. I figure he spends at least a week. Why? Because he's got so many questions. He is a Weston on steroids. He is hungry to know what he's missed. 
He's excited about the new truths he's being given. He has a love for the brethren that used to repulse him. Can't stand those hypocritical Christians. My family. And then he did something absolutely mind-boggling, wonderful. Verse 20. And straightway, he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God. I, I, I see a busy man, don't you? Who even gets up and he says, guys, I've been wrong. I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was trained theologically to be a devout Jew and I was wrong. I'm going to tell you, Jesus is the son of God. And he's preaching. You have a testimony. You have something you can say. People aren't going to always like it. Say it anyway. It's all got busy. We want, I want a church. I want to be a part of a church that is busy. Doesn't just come and sit, but that we are in motion. Because God gave us something to do. So I conclude, did you notice? Saul wasn't looking for Jesus. Jesus came looking for Saul. I was not looking, and a woman at a coffee shop handed me a gospel track and said, where are you going when you die? Wow, what a way to start a conversation. <laughs> I wasn't looking for God. I wasn't looking for Jesus. Jesus was looking for me. Conversion was not automatic. There had to be a conversation. There had to be a toing and froing. A, a, is that really you? Is this conviction that I'm feeling? Is this guilt? Is this fear? Good. Amen. Saul was the most religious man he could be, and yet deep down he was a sinner who needed a Savior from his sins. Even the best need a Savior. Amen. You know what Mother Teresa said in the last couple of years of her life? She wrote in her diary, I do not believe God exists. Now, I understand why she wrote that, because she had seen so much politization of poverty. Nobody ever helps the poor. People make money off of claiming to help the poor. And she saw so much politization, the abuse of the poor, taking advantage of the poor to get elected. And she saw that God didn't seem to help the poor. And so she wrote at the end, I don't believe there's a God. You know what somebody needed to do? Sit down with her and say, let me tell you about Jesus. See, Jesus suffered. Nobody seemed to care. And he was, he went all the way to the cross because this world is cursed, but he wants to save sinners. And whether you're Mother Teresa or Pope John Paul II, you need to be born again. Saul was thoroughly converted. He didn't just become a little more religious. <laughs> we don't need more of that. Since he met Jesus, he was changed. He was thoroughly converted. Are there any Saul's here today? Anybody who's never had that conversation yet with Jesus, never had that moment where you argued and you says, I, I, I don't think I believe you exist, and yet you're talking to him. <laughs> you know what you need to pray? Lord, what do you want me to do? And he says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first thing you got to do, amen? And then after that, folks, let me tell you, every Christian in this room, if you are saved, you're an Ananias. God has a purpose for you to help somebody who could be the next Saul of Tarsus. Will you argue and resist or will you yield and obey? There are souls who need us in motion. They need us living holy lives. The world sees blah. They need to see somebody living right and godly and clean and joyful and, and for God.
The world is attracted to that. And they need us to love them. We can always find fault, can't we? Let's look at the world and go, I don't know who this is, but let's give him the gospel. Let's see what he turns out to be. Stand with me. Let's bow in prayer. Right now, you're being given a second chance. You may have heard all the gospel time after time after time before. If you Every head bowed and every eye closed now. But you'll be given another chance right now where you, you can have that conversation and say, Lord, I've argued with you. I've fought with you, but I'm the sinner that you died for. And I don't know how to pray, but I definitely don't want to miss this chance to have to get what Paul got. Whatever Paul got, I want. And it's not a what, it's a who. So in this room, if there's somebody who could admit they are a sinner, admit that they're lost without hope, without God, that they would, if you would just cry out to him, call on his name. That name, Jesus, is, is your only needed key to getting into heaven. It's not a good luck charm. It's a savior. Would you ask him to save you? I mean, ask with, from a broken heart and believe with all your heart he's listening. And I tell you what, he can't refuse. That's how good a God he is. And then... Christian, would you realize you and I have a job to do as well? I don't know. What am I ever going to become? At least I want to become an Ananias. So, Lord, we bow our heads now and ask that you would, in our heart of hearts, help us to have a, have a yielded spirit. Both Saul and Ananias both said, here am I. What do you want me to do? We're missing that. We're very proud. We put conditions on the Lord of the universe. We put conditions on the kind of people that we will fellowship with. We, we are so arrogant when we're supposed to be just like Jesus. And right now, God, you went after Saul. I pray we would go too. Would you bless, Lord, um, what we heard today? In Jesus' name, amen. Grab your hymnal.